Hey, beautiful human family. Welcome to another episode of the Art of Being Human podcast. I am so glad you're joining me today, and I'm excited that you're participating in the question, what does it mean to be a beneficial human being? I'm your host and fellow human being, Meg Hepner. All right, lovely friends, I have to share some of the great things that are happening right now, and I want you to join me. Every month, I host my Soul Sister Women's Circles. These circles are for those who are looking to have powerful and deep connections with other authentic, heart-centered women. During these circles, we dive into what does it mean to be a woman in this world and how can we live in an empowered way that shows a true reflection of who we are. Twice a month, we have our authentic deep conversation circle where we gather to have the deep conversations we often long to have, but seldom get the opportunity to experience. I don't know about you, but I need a place where I can remove the mask of perfection I so often feel like I have to wear and just have a heart to heart conversation about life and about all the things it requires to exist in this world. And I have to say, I enjoy these nights so much because when women who want to support each other and lift each other up gather, something just very magical is created. And I always leave these circles feeling more empowered and with a little nugget or new perspective that helps me walk through the world in a more authentic way. We also have our monthly wisdom and discernment circle, and this is a really special circle. This is a group for women who find themselves at a crossroads in life. They have an area of their life where they are not sure which direction to take, and they need the support of a sisterhood to hold space for them as they figure it out. Now, for those of you who want to go a little bit deeper, you're welcome to join a long-term Soul Sister Women's Circle. This group is for those of you who really want to do the work and you want to do the work with the support of other women. You want to journey into how you created your identity, how your stories influence you and what has shaped you into who you are. You want to dive into what it means to truly love and accept yourself and how you can walk through this world empowered to make an impact on your own life, on the lives of your families and on the lives of the people in your community. And of course, you want to dive into your shadow side to wrestle with the monsters that we would normally run away from. This group requires a three-month commitment, and it allows you to build an incredible community of women who are all doing the exact same work. If these groups sound like something you'd love to join and experience, then all the links for them will be in the show notes. So check them out. We would love to see you at an event. One of the things that I can get overly obsessed about is this idea of truth. Some things are true and some things are not true. And you think that would be really simple, but what's true to some people is not true to other people. And it can send me down a complete rabbit hole of trying to figure out what is true. And this idea that I cannot um, drives me absolutely crazy. So I don't know what keeps you up at night, but that's something that keeps me up at night. And today I get to have a conversation about 
truth. And joining me for that conversation is Jeremy Sherman. Jeremy Sherman has a PhD in evolutionary epistemology, and he is the author of some very interesting and cool books. His latest one is called What's Up With Assholes? How to Spot and Stop Them Without Becoming One, which I highly recommend you check out. Um, So that's what we talk about. We talk about what is truth and how can you decide what's true for you and how do you live in the conundrum of truth being something that's maybe relative for some people. Anyway, we dive into a lot. It's a mind bender. So enjoy. All right, Jeremy, I'm so excited to have this conversation with you. And I would love to tell you why. One, I've already been gushing for the few minutes we've been talking (laughs) beforehand, but I would love to tell you why. I've been excited about this because I find most people, And this is a massive generalization, so I do understand that. But most people love to talk about how to rearrange the furniture in the house of your mind, right? So put the sofa there, put the couch there, rearrange your belief system. But then there's the occasional person who says, let's tear down the entire house. And let's build something new. And for some reason, my perception of you is that you are someone who would be willing to tear down the entire house and that you see, and again, this is all my perception of you, that you see how just constant rearranging of furniture could potentially be a frivolous endeavor. And so I'm excited (laughs) that you're here. I'm excited to be having this conversation. But for our listeners who don't know you at all and only know my perception of you, please tell us a little bit about yourself and how you became passionate about, I'm going to call it the human mind, the human experience. You can give it whatever languaging is more for you. First of all, great to be here. Um, uh, I love your framing of that um, about the rearranging of furniture, but I also have to be clear about it. I am um, uh, I am not interested in becoming an influencer by being a maverick. That is, I'm not interested in tearing things apart um, for the sake of tearing them apart. And actually, at this point in, in our cultural history here, there are a lot of people who assume that if you tear things apart... Um, they uh, then utopia will follow. And I find that extremely dangerous. At the same time, as you've got that kind of uh, attitude, you've got what I call cliche Guevara, which is that one of the most popular things, especially among influencers, is to say the same stuff that's been said so many times before. It's trite cliches, but to say it with an edgy style, Mm. um, as if they're being a maverick. And that's not interesting to me, too. What what but here's the connection that does work for me. I, um, uh, I, in my first 40 years, I was chasing some kind of affirmation uh, by by basically uh, what I've come to call the 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 tuck and and duck strategy. It's a moral strategy where you basically, if something sounds good, you try to tuck yourself under it. And if it sounds bad, you try to duck it. So you're not even hardly paying attention to what's true. You're basically going with the flow, following whatever's popular. Um, and uh, and I've, I threw myself into things pretty full force um, and um, realized during a first of two midlife crises, I'm now 65, uh, 66, I can no longer officially have any more midlife crises because I'm no longer <laughs> midlife. But um, I realized that I had been doing something that I'll call I once was lost, but now I'm blind. 
um, which is that I would move from one choice to another choice um, uh, and throw myself all into it, in part because I was looking for some kind of fundamental affirmation. And somehow my attention turned to the choosing itself. And I went back to school uh, and got a PhD. I had already had a master's in public policy. I was working in social, uh, in, in I had founded an environmental lobbying organization. I was actually a, a, a national one. I was an environmental activist, basically, is what you could call me. Um, I, got, I got a PhD in decision theory and evolutionary theory. So I, was re- I got really interested in how organisms shop among interpretations. Um, the furniture can't be removed. You can't blow it all up. I, it, what we call our intuition, I think, of as the entire constellation of evolved and learned uh, assumptions, habits. Um, so there is no blowing it up. I don't believe in beginner's mind. I find it a dubious concept, this idea that you could reach a state of enlightenment where you are pure and unbiased. I just think it's nonsense. I'm not interested in convincing myself that I'm not a self um, or or any of that kind of revelation, which has gotten, uh, it, it's it's regained some popularity through the psychedelics movement. There's an idea, there's an idea that was floated by this guy, Michael Pollan, who has a new uh, network, uh, net, Netflix series, uh, How to Change Your Mind, which hints that what you find out, what's revealed to you is that you're not a self, that you're, that you're something pure or more essential or more universal than that. None of that interests me. I'm interested in how organisms shop among interpretations. And um, so because of that, it, it brings me a different perspective, largely because about 25 years ago, I fell in with a Harvard neuroscientist and a bio, he was a neuroscientist biological anthropologist who I've been jamming with closely for 25 years now. So for example, we took a we we took a dog walk this morning and worked on the research. He moved from Harvard to Berkeley. He had just come up with this, he had just begun to focus his his first whole 20 years research at Harvard was on how we ended up with language and how language makes us different. Mm-hmm. The second, the second 25 years, the work years I've been working with him is uh the difference between organisms and non-organisms. So Basically, what is trying and how did it start? What is trying involves interpretation. So when I talk about decision theory and evolutionary theory, I'm talking about how organisms interpret their environments in their efforts to stay alive. Um, and he was dealing with this fundamental question, which is just unfamiliar. It's um, we're all we all are self-obsessed and we're all trying, but we very rarely step back, if ever. To wonder what is a self and what is trying. Chemistry is not trying to do anything. Nothing we do violates the laws of chemistry and physics. We are chemical, physical systems. And yet we're trying and chemistry isn't. So mm-hmm. what is trying and how did it start? So we've been working on that for 25 years. That gives me a grounding for all of this work I do on how critters shop among interpretations. That includes trees. A tree shops among a, a tree has to interpret day length in order to keep itself alive. So it's a very different kind of interpretation than we do with all of our feelings and thoughts. And yet we would argue that trying and interpretation starts at the origins of life. So I actually work all the way up from a grounding in chemistry. 
And most of what I do is writing pop psych articles for Psychology Today um, under two titles there. One is Ambigamy, Insights for the Deeply Romantic and Deeply Skeptical. Um, and the other is Jerkology, What Makes Some People Tick Like Time Bombs. Mm. So this is a whole, I, I call my work Cradle to Grave, from the origins of life to our grave situation. And a lot of what I pay attention to at the grave situation end is what I call psychoproctology. That is, I study, I'm, I'm looking for more objective standards for determining how you diagnose, treat, and prevent assholery. <laughs> so it's a, it's a delightful life full of all this exploration. I don't see myself as trying to rearrange the furniture. I've set up some questions that are different. And as a result, the, the furniture gets rearranged some. Yeah, you know what? It, it, it's so interesting because I'm having one of these stressed out moments where I'm like, okay, I want to ask you about like probably yeah, no, 17, it, 17 yeah. things that you just said. I'm like, oh, and what about? No, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's perfect. <laughs> why don't I start? Why don't I start with something yeah. very, very simple? Good, and I'll try and give you a short answer. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I find this, I find this fascinating, and I'll give you some context, okay. and then and then I'm going to ask the question. So I was telling you before we started recording how I've always been fascinated with religion fascinated with religion, gave myself to studying different religions, um, made it the most important part of my day, blah, 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 blah. And what I recently came to realize is that the reason I was so fascinated with religion was because my mother was always in extreme pain and her, her, does, her what she used to comfort herself, yes. her pain was religion. So I wanted to become the thing that would soothe ah, religion, right? Or so would soothe her pain. So I thought in my little brain, I must have at some point in time gone, if I become this thing, if I become very good at religion, I will inadvertently heal my mother's pain somehow, right? I sort of came to that realization. And so my question, my very simple question for you is, how did you become interested in this? Like, if you think about a human being and all the different things a human being can give their life to, you've given your life to something that's extremely fascinating. And I'm curious how you got here. Okay. Uh, and is religion part of what you're, I mean, I can tie it into what you're asking, but are you just more asking, how did I end up here? Yeah, just end up here. You don't, you can, you can tie in because well, people who've listened for a long time know the religion comes up all the time in my podcast, but yeah. you don't have to tie it in at all. I'm more curious about your line of work. When you look at it, you go, how the fuck did I get it here? Like what, why am I giving myself to this particular line? Of oh, work? so so my situation is peculiar, and I have to factor it in. I have to disclose my situation. I'm an inheritor. Uh, my father and grandfather started Midas Mufflers, and I ended up not with an enormous, uh, not enough money that I could do just everything, uh, but enough that I had a free day that I could commit to whatever was um of my priority. So when I founded that national lobbying organization, that was because I could afford to. And this work that I currently do doesn't pay well. I write books that uh, that um, that don't compensate me highly. Um, uh, uh, what it, it, I was un, unlike many people who inherit, I was plagued by guilt about it. Some of that was just the culture in which I inherited it. 
we were, this was the 1960s counterculture, 1970s, let's say, and a sense of that the world needed to turn toward uh, greater equality, that we were in the age of Aquarius. So I was a, I was a dyed-in-the-wool hippie. Um, I was 10 years too late for the hippies, but I lived on the world's largest hippie commune for seven years um, and was an elected elder of this commune at 24. I was a very devoted hippie. It was 1,400 people in Tennessee. We were really something. Um, uh, so, but I would say that in a way it parallels what you're talking about, which is there's a kind of, in in many children, and for interesting evolutionary reasons, um, you're, you're parasiting on your parents' wisdom. Uh, that's what a child does. They don't have, uh, we're born extremely plastic, meaning that we can evolve into all sorts of cultural circumstances. And our guidance to it, what you can and can't do, is from our parents. Now, I raised a child who was born without this capacity, um, a very troublesome relationship. So I really appreciate why parents, why kids would bond and devote themselves to their parents. This kid's in a dangerous situation. He's 42 now, but it's, but, um, but in my case, like you, I was looking to stand where my parents' attention was drawn, but I also had two older brothers who had already who were already occupying those spaces. Uh, there's interesting research on uh, 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 later-born siblings and how they have to kind of find a niche because the niches are occupied. In my case, it was pretty classic that way. So, um, so it there was a way in which I was extremely anxious and very eager to uh, to prove myself exhaustingly so for me and for the company around me. Um, I was just uh, writing an article on this very topic today for Psychology Today and remembering a friend of mine who at 35, when I was 35, he said, you know what I really wish for you, Jeremy? I wish you'd just screw up royally once. And then you'd see that the world is not paying that much attention. You're not being monitored like you think you are. Um, around that time, I had my first midlife crisis and remembered something that Buckminster Fuller said, which is, what were you about to do before they told you you had to go out and earn a living? Mm. Now, I never had to earn a living. I, this is what's bizarre about my life, because I had this inheritance. But I had a sense that I had to prove myself. And my parents died young. They died at 59, each of them of different cancers, just by coincidence. So they were no longer around by about 35 for me to impress. And I was suddenly no longer trying to justify my inheritance. And I was stuck with the question, what am I going to do with myself next? And this came along and I just feel like it's dumb luck. Like what you, here's one way to look at it. The universe is vast, but very few things Things within it, very few chemical systems within the universe can speculate about the whole ball of wax and us in it. So it turns out that what I've done with my discretionary freedom is to spend my days taking as careful notes as I can on what this is and who we are from a scientific perspective. And that's, I'm not a spiritual person, I'm an atheist, but I, but it's the equivalent of my spiritual path. You could say that I hold no higher power than reality. And mm. I give you a sense of what I mean by reality, because everybody's up again. Uh, I mean, it's, 
Uh, we debate what reality contains, but I don't think there's much debate about the container. The container is anything, all the real, uh, what all the direct and indirect threats and opportunities that bear on us. So we will debate what's contained in that, and some people will argue that God's wrath is contained in that because it bears on us. But we don't have much debate about what reality means. And I'm saying, I'm a scientist, which means I'm in a campaign to find natural explanations for all natural phenomena. It's an ambitious campaign. So explaining what we are, explaining what interpretation is, I'm just happy to be a member of this generation who can actually begin to explore some of those things with uh, the tools we've got. And I'm confident it, when you play in science, you, you, you've got to embrace the fact that you could spend your entire life barking up the wrong tree. It's, it's all speculative work, but it's careful speculation. And I love being part of it. That's how I got into this. That's fascinating. I, I think science or being... Oh, and I didn't give you a short answer, by the way. No, you did <laughs> Just for the record. did it, but that's okay. I found it all fascinating. Okay. Um, I, do think, I do think being a scientist, you must um, hold within you a level of humility because you know at any point in time, you could be something could be proven different, right? And so I think that science... Um, in and of itself just needs a lot of humility, which I any scientist that I've met seems to carry with them, which is a little different than religion because religion also bears so much truth, but they don't often have that humility. But um, here's a question for you, though, because I'm so fascinated. And I just did an interview about this the other day, actually, about reality and truth. So I'm the type of person that when I hear something, I refuse to believe it because... <laughs> Not I refuse to believe it. That's not the right way of saying it. But I'm so, I so desperately want to know, is it true or is it BS that I'm making up in my mind? Because to me, nothing feels worse than making up something in my mind and then walking around with a whole bunch of hubris, like I know the truth. I just find that to be such a, a yucky feeling. So I always think truth must be in alignment with reality. If it's true, it has to be in alignment with reality. So how do I know if something is true or not? And I know that's a very, very big question, but I think it does sort of take us into the question a little bit. And, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. Please do. Um, into this, Because <laughs> you, yeah, you wouldn't <laughs> want to believe a false thing. So <laughs> I'll correct you if I'm wrong, if you're wrong, as if I know, right? <laughs> Don't leave me. Don't leave me in my misery here in my, in my wrong thinking. <laughs> um, but, you know, I had this situation and I have to say it took me probably, I will humbly say, mm, <laughs> at least a good three days to get over it where I was speaking with someone and they said, wow, it sounds like you're very good at rationalizing. And I went <laughs> home and I have to tell, like, I couldn't sleep. I, I felt the white hot heat of shame flow over me all night. And I thought, how do, how is that true? One, it, re it revealed to me how much power I give to other people to know truth. So lesson number one, um, but two, it made me go, how do I know if I'm, if it's real or right. not? And does it matter? Anyway, it, somewhere in there was a question. <laughs> I've got the question. I know exactly what okay. you're talking about. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> okay. So notice, remember I mentioned a minute ago, the tuck and duck yeah. strategy. So one of the ways that people get whipsawed all around is 
by this thing where if it sounds good, you want to associate with it. If it sounds bad, you want to disassociate from it. Um, how do we deal with that problem? So someone accuses of you of rationalizing, rationalizing as a pejorative, and it 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 um, it causes you sleepless nights. So um, I want to tell you, I'm a human. Nothing human is foreign to me. Um, there is a way in which people will cast a word like rationalizing um, at someone else. It's what I call exempt by contempt. That is, if if I have contempt for a, a behavior I see in others, that proves I don't have it. I'm exempt from having it. Um, uh, it's a way in which people can blare their police siren at others so loudly that they cannot hear their own humanness. And it's rife these days. We're suffering an epidemic of it here in the States these days. Um, since scientists can be wrong, it proves I'm right about everything. Mm -hmm. would be the kind of approach. So how do I deal with that? I I would say that I'd, I'm the, if I were not humble, I'd be the last to know it. Yeah. I wouldn't put it past me has been my mantra for 25 years. There's nothing humans do that I don't do. Um, and uh, in a way, in a strange way that inoculates me against these kinds of aspersions that get cast at you. Um, because if someone calls me a name caller, I say, well, of course I'm a name caller. Yeah. You are too. You just called me a name caller. Um, you, if someone says you're being judgmental, I said, of course you're being I'm being judgmental. You are too. My question is where to judge, where not to, where to name call, where not to. I believe that all of the moves in the human repertoire, including hate and lying and hypocrisy, have their place. And my goal is to figure out what those places are. There's a place for every move. These moves do not, I'm not interested in excising my hate. Like I could give myself a lobotomy and remove a piece of human nature. No, I'm interested in using it where it belongs where it, and not where it doesn't belong. Um, it's very much like the serenity prayer. I want the wisdom to notice the differences that make a difference to where to use opposite strategies. Yeah. And for that, I, I, what you were just describing about wanting to get to the, to the what's true, God forbid you should be kidding yourself, um, this was the main driver. So the official name of my PhD is evolutionary epistemology. Epistemology is the philosophy of knowledge. What counts as knowledge? And it starts out with this desperate attempt to nail things down, what we call justified true belief. Um, I, I don't, I'm an epistemologist, but I'm an evolutionary one. And one thing you notice about life from the beginning is that it's trying. Yoda was completely wrong. It's it's when he says there's no try, there's only do. That in the movies, yes, and as an inspiration, that's fine, but it's bullshit. It's actually not true. There's only try. Organisms have, have been trying since the beginning, and they've been trying with the inescapable inescapable possibility that they will make their best possible guess and it will come out worse. That is, there are ironic situations. So I am what we call in the in philosophy a fallibilist. And my definition of a fallibilist, my motto as a fallibilist is, no matter how confident I am in a bet, I remain still more confident that it is a bet. Mm. That is, it's you only get bets, which doesn't mean that any bet is as good as any other. It just means that you can never reach 100% certainty about anything. I have gotten more peace of mind. 
I have settled into the hot water of the human condition more comfortably through fallibilism and irony, an ironic attitude about the ironic situations in life, the tragic comic that, that life is dire. You could die. You could kill lots of people by accident. And it's also slapstick. And it has always been that way. So in a way, that's what weaned me off of the fear of uh, being labeled with something negative or the fear that I am operating on some delusion. I'm a, I am confident that I'm operating on delusions. To give you an example, I still believe at 66 that death is for losers and that I'm somehow exempt. <laughs> I mean, it's just absurd. But uh, you know, I, I wrote a I wrote a song about it called "I'm Sure Gonna Miss Me When I'm Gone." <laughs> it's just, so I, I just find I find it. I, we're a hoot. Humans are a hoot, and it's and it's it's white knuckle ride. Mm-hmm. Uh, trying and trying to avoid errors on either side, trying to guess right in the particular situation. So that's some of a that's some of how I think about this, and it is different from religion. Religion claims to have the best answer possible, the formula, the, no use for further evidence. Science says no, this is the best guess so far uh, to be beaten by better guesses. Yeah. Yeah. And and I will say one, I will say, like, I, I really appreciate what, what you just said, because 100%, one of my biggest, I think the two warring sides within me yeah. are the side that says, I accept all of my humanness. And then the side that says, but I don't want to be duped again. Right. Like, cause if I look at, yeah. Because it's right. like my even okay. So talking a little bit about faith. Yeah. One, I think like, I think if you interpret Jesus properly, he and, and this is my guess, right? Yeah. So I could potentially be wrong, but he was he was a religious figure who said it was like this, but it could also be like this, right? Because his constant thing was, "You've heard it said, but I say unto you." And then he went on to go, "And you're going to do even more of what I'm doing, which is, it was this, and now it's going to be this." So, in some ways, I think of him very much as a scientist, so to speak, where he went, "Yeah, yeah, 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 that was true," but what I'm saying to you is that we've grown and moved since then, and we we've our, our picture of what it what is possible has grown. And I think to me, when I think of staying true to Christian teachings, because I was telling you before we started recording that I would consider myself a Christian atheist in that I don't build a Christian God. I believe the most Christian thing to do is to kill any God you try to build. And so I think like to constantly be going, it could have been like this, but it could be like that. Now I forgot what I was going to say because I got, I got on in a religious, oh, now I know. No, I'm back. I'm back. Funny trail, but I came back. So That's the part good. of me that says I don't want to be duped is the part of me that I guess I don't like the feeling. And this is the feeling that comes up for me. I don't like the feeling of humiliation. And what happened to me is I was very, very religious being young. I actually yeah. wanted to be a Catholic nun. I didn't grow up Catholic. My brothers asked me, my brothers were all quite a bit older than me. When I was eight years old, they said to me, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, a nun. And they said, we're not Catholic. And I said, I'll just lie. <laughs> I just wanted to be this nun. I just wanted to be this very, very good thing. And then I went deep into the prosperity gospel. So I swung 
all the way into the prosperity gospel. Like prayers go up and blessings come down, right? If you pray for that parking spot in Vancouver where parking is a nightmare, you're going to get it. Hashtag blessed. And um, I don't like the feeling (laughs) of being duped. Right. So, so, yeah, so you're right on the topic that I'm talking about. I am a romantic cynic. Um, this is also called a romantic realist. Mm. That is, I assume that I'm full of aspirations for a better world. And um, and I even have an explanation for why. Um, one of my uh one of the one of the people in my lineage is a guy named Ernest Becker, who wrote a book called The Denial of Death. Um, and he's trying to understand the human condition. Uh, under the influence of language. For example, the heart of that book is about how we are the first organism that can foresee in great detail our inevitable disappearance, that we're going to die. So for me, the big underlying question is, how do you throw all into life knowing that you'll be thrown out? Hmm. And how do you deal with the everyday little death, the little snubbings, the little uh, uh, exposures to the ways in which you were duped? How do you deal with them? Because in a way, they smell like death. That is, um, and and one of the standard moves that we all make, um, there's now all sorts of research in a field called terror management theory, which it does experiments and it, it, it shows that if you prime people on their deaths, they tend to dig in their heels on whatever their articles of faith is. They engage in what they call immortality projects. That mm-hmm. is, I'll die, but something will live on that I'm part of longer than I will and it may even grant me everlasting life. So what is really going on here? Becker describes us as gods with anuses. And what he means by that is that we are grounded in in the physical world. In fact, we need food constantly in order to stay alive. Um, And at the same time, through language, we can imagine the infinite, the infinite good, the infinite powerful, the infinite... Uh, knowledgeable, and um, so we're stuck in this tension between the romantic side of us that can imagine that we will rise like a phoenix and live happily ever after, which is what 90% of movies are about, Um, and at the same time, we are grounded here in meat space trying to do the guesswork of getting along in life. So, I consider that the curriculum. You could say that there are two other, There, I would say that there are three schools for dealing with this fundamental question, how do you throw all in, knowing you'll be thrown out, which plays out in the span of a life, but also can play, play out in the, um, in the cosmic wedgies we get when we throw all into something and find out later it's bogus. Hmm. How do we deal with that? One school is, well, you find the one internal truth, and you throw yourself into that, and you will be granted eternal life. There are 2.4 billion Christians. There's 1.8 billion Muslims. I mean, it's that's a popular one. The other one is uh, just assume you're thrown out already. Divest, divest, divest. This is kind of a Buddhist or ascetic approach. Um, that is, convince yourself that you're not a self. I'm not interested in either of them. I think both of those are dodges that don't get me to focus on the curriculum. The curriculum is that is is this romantic cynicism? Is this romantic realism? Is this recognition 
that I am in this paradoxical situation. I'm in this ironic situation where I can imagine ideals, but I'm still grounded here where you don't reach ideals. Mm. And for me, therefore, religion is not... I've, I've invented three or four religions. You can find them up on YouTube. I'm an atheist. I just think they're fun to invent. But... Um, uh, and and can be educational to invent. But I mostly think of religion as a Rorschach block by which you get to understand something about the human condition, the appetites that humans have. Um, uh, because I, and I would go so far as to say that any organism anywhere in the universe that had language, any intelligent life form would have religions like ours. They, it, it's, a, it's a standard, it, it would just naturally fall out of this um, uh, gods with with anuses paradox that language sets up for us. Other organisms can't imagine the ideal. We can through language. It puts us in this very anxious tension, and we would resolve it with ideas about how how you can how you can avoid all delusion and end up on the path. It's kind of like purgatory. Um, that is, you know the path. You're on the path. You're destined for heaven. You're not there yet, but you're getting there. That would be a great comfort zone for people. Yeah, it's such a white knuckle ride. Yeah, you know what? It's so interesting because um, I I 100% agree with you. I can only speak from my own worldview and my own experience, but like um, I I, I have this conversation with my kids all the time when we when we talk about you know uh, for us our our history and Christianity that there's this idea that it's God inspired work, and what I say to my children is actually it's it's, it's humans writing about ideals. It's humans writing about the, what they would consider the greatest good. Yeah, figments of ultimate satisfaction. As yeah, well. right, right. And that it tells us more about the human condition than it does necessarily. Exactly, exactly. So a big early revelation for me studying evolutionary biology was that we didn't fall from grace. We rose from slime. <laughs> and wow. we're still... That's a different yeah. picture, huh? <laughs> it's, it's disappointing in a couple of ways. If we fell from grace, we could just return to it. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what the promised land kind of concept is about. There are no promises. If, you, if you're if you a scientist, you look at the universe, you've got 10 billion years where there's no life, no nothing trying to do anything. And then there's life that's struggling to, it's struggling to exist. Okay, so... Um, so uh, but there's relief in that there's not a predetermined outcome that we get to create the next future, complicated as it is, that we have leeway, that we're not puppets in a deity's game. That he, And so there's extraordinary liberation into fallibilism, this idea that we are placing bets and we're trying to place careful ones and they could go wrong. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Well, it's in, okay. So you can I, I would love to hear your opinion of this. My my son, my son is 17 and him and I are we dabble in Albert Camus because we like this idea and I'm going to probably butcher it, but this idea of, you know, none of it matters, but that doesn't take you into nihilism, that takes you into freedom. Right? So if right. It, yes. if Sorry, please go ahead. Go ahead. I wanted you. So the paradox is that nothing matters to the universe or to something outside the universe. But so so the way we talk about it is um, mattering is real, but doesn't have a primary or ultimate 
matter or meet, meaning is real, but there's no original or ultimate meaning. It's right. local. Meaning is local, but it's real local. I love that. I love that. And and that's and that's the thing that him and I wrestle with all the time is this there's this idea of it matters to me, but there isn't this like grand scheme that I think I'm pleasing. Yeah, and and you're saying that and you realize that there's freedom in that. And and well, yes, there's freedom in that. Now I also read this thing, it was very interesting, and I have to for I have to confess I forgot who said it. So I I don't know. It doesn't who matter to me. Said it. That's fine. Uh, well, I I, I ideas was, for their own worth. Yeah. Who says stuff doesn't matter to me. It's okay. the content. Okay. So what they were talking about, and again, it was, you know, someone who who is knowledgeable in this kind of stuff, but they said the real the real experience of freedom is different than we as human beings think it is. Like for us as human beings, we go, oh God, if I were free, I'd eat what I'd want, I'd sleep with who I'd want, I'd buy what I want. Like that's freedom, right? Like I'm free. And they were saying, no, freedom is anxiety because you have no walls or boundaries to know this is what I want to do or this is what I this yeah. is what I should or shouldn't do. So the actual the actual experience of ultimate freedom begins to give birth this crazy feeling of anxiety because we don't know. And that's why we sell our freedom so quickly where we go, Oh, I, the culture tells me this. So then I must, or the religions tell me this, therefore I must, we sell our freedom quite quickly because freedom isn't this wonderful euphoric utopia is actually a state of anxiety. And that is often why in North American countries, which is where I'm located, there is so much anxiety because we do technically have more freedom than we, than we think. Like, I think my parents were immigrants to this country and they were not super anxious people. They didn't have anxiety. They were too busy trying to put food on the table. Do you know what I mean? Like their, their anxieties were, do we have enough to eat? Sure. Have clothes to wear? Can we put a roof over our head? Their anxieties were not existential where it's like, you know, is my life have purpose? (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Um, I don't know if that makes sense to you or it makes lots of sense to me. So, um, uh, um, figuring out, remember I was talking about, I'm trying to figure out where to name call, where to lie, where, uh, that is, I don't think it's there. Ex- it, I certainly don't think they're exclusively good or exclusively bad. I'm trying to figure out where to do things. So, um, the origins of life work is working with two concepts in physics. One is constraint and the other is flow. Um, uh, think about it in terms of uh, to get any work done, you actually need to constrain the flow of energy. That is why you put uh, you put gasoline into cylinders to run pistons and all of that. Um, constraint in in modern culture, um, it, it, it's either considered positive when people are saying, "Well, we need more structure," or you know, fun, uh, fundamentalists will talk about it that way, or it's seen as negative by the libertarians who say that they uh that we should open everything up or the anarchists or something like that um and the and the same with freedom freedom is is uh risky to the fundamentalists um and it's uh and it's exactly what the libertarians are about um those are absurd positions to take on it is constraint good or bad uh is freedom good or bad it depends on what you're trying to achieve and how you're trying to achieve it um I am addicted to all sorts of constraints. Um, I'm I have more freedom in my schedule than most people, but um, one way I think about it is that I usually can't constrain myself, but I can. That is, I 
yeah, I can constrain myself, but I can usually set up my environment so it constrains me. So mm -hmm. people who expect things from me are, are a constraint on me. Um, uh, yeah, the, the, just a variety of things that constrain my behavior, including things like my addiction to my uh, computer technology. It's a constraint. I have to maintain this stuff. Um, one way I think about this is that the definition for love, the, the my best guess at what love is, is doing dedicated work to maintain something that you depend upon. Um, uh, you know, you do you you make channeled effort, you make constrained effort to maintain something that you depend upon. That is also my definition of addiction. <laughs> the only difference between them is your prognosis. Yeah. If you see a couple that are doing dedicated work to maintain their relationship and you think it's not going to end well, you could say, yeah, you guys are just addicted to each other. If you think it's going to work out well, you say, that's love. So, mm -hmm. But the behavior itself is about constraint. To do dedicated work, of all the things I could do, I do this work to maintain access or to maintain something that I depend on existing. What do I mean by that? If it stopped existing, I'd be in trouble. Suddenly I'm not, if if my wife left me, suddenly I'm not half the man I used to be. That is, we become partial. We, we become addicted or devoted to constraints that we thrive within. Yeah. It's, so it's about setting up the right constraints and the right freedoms. It's not about whether freedom is good Obviously, what you're talking about, the anxiety thing, that's the heart of what existential philosophy is about. I call it the free willies, the terror of having responsibility for how your life is going to go. But yeah. what I want to get at is you want to line up the right and not the wrong constraints, yeah. and the right and not the wrong freedoms. That's what we're trying to do at the governmental level. That's what we're trying to do at the individual level if we're, if, if we're, if we're trying to give, live a good life. Yeah, you know, it's interesting that you say that. I have um, I have a, an author who I really appreciate. His name is Father Richard Rohr. He's a Franciscan priest, and he talks about, like, um, the reason there's the law in Christianity is because it gives constraint to the ego. Because without constraint to the ego, the ego of a 15-year-old boy would go insane. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Which is why you teach the law, and, and in this way, he means, you know, like yeah. the law of religion, to young people so that their ego can go into a container and that that container can be a lovely container. But he says at some point in time, you have to make that shift into, look, that was the container I needed in my youth when I needed to build an yeah. ego. Yeah. But now I'm going towards, and this is what you're talking about, love. Um, it's interesting because I have a question about what you think about this. But the other thing I wanted to say is it's very interesting because like my, my, my dad is, is a functioning alcoholic, so he has an addiction. Um, but it's so fascinating because it's not a, a culturally sanctioned addiction like workaholism or whatever. There's this idea of, oh, this poor man is, you know, struggling and dealing with all this terrible stuff. But then there's people in the community who are literally addicted to their work and addicted to collecting more resources and addicted to building their little kingdoms bigger and bigger and bigger. And as because that's culturally sanctioned as lovely, we applaud that addiction. But then with, you know, another addiction, we we kind of Got look it. at yeah, that that's in right. completely different ways. So it's like, how do you and that's just culture. I think that's just, you know, our, our culture lifts up and, and you'll, my so my judgment will come out here. My our culture lifts up sort of this greedy 
you know, type of way of walking in the right. world. Right, there, there are sanctioned and non-sanctioned addictions uh, in culture. I think I'm saying something one step beyond that. Um, I'm happy, I want to confuse the connotations that, that are on words. Love sounds like it's always a good thing. Addiction sounds like it's always a bad thing. My point is if you really want to get skillful at rearranging the furniture of your life, because you've got it, you're not going to, don't burn it down because you're stuck with it. I mean, you can, you can toss stuff out. Uh, you can get new furniture. But in the meantime, to do it skillfully, you've got to stop thinking in terms of uh, the move being either moral or immoral. I adore my addictions. I have the, the some of the healthiest addictions I could imagine for myself. Other people might think my addictions are bad. I'm very addicted to this work that we do. I My idea of happiness is having infinite patience for the dedicated work it takes to do the thing that I'm doing. So that's that infinite patience is me doing dedicated work to maintain something I depend upon. If I stopped doing this work, I would not be half the man I used to be. Um, so... I'm trying to I'm trying to get to the to the basic moves that we've got to work with. We got constraint and freedom. We want to set up the right constraints and not the wrong constraints for growing us in the directions we'd like to grow. Most of us don't have much control over what constraints we're under. For example, a lot of people have to spend their entire day doing work that is not on their short list just to make a living. Um the more freedom you've got, the more autonomy you can have. It's worth trying to figure out how to use that discretionary freedom in ways that grow you in the directions you want to go, you want to grow. So th that's that's the heart of it is, yes, there are lots of different opinions about what's a good addiction and what's a bad one. Here's an example. I live in Northern California. I'm a stoner. I'm a stoner. I, I I was a hippie before. I I hardly have any use for alcohol at all. I find it a um an uh un, unstimulating drug, but I often get stoned and find it useful to my work. Um for years I thought of that as a bad addiction. Um I go uh, extended periods without it, but um so it's not exactly a physical chemical addiction. Um it's one of the things I do. I also watch TV a fair amount in the evening after a full day's work. There have been times when I've questioned any of any one of my addictions, any one of my love affairs um, with my work. With but the question then becomes: by my standards, what is it? What makes for a good addiction, not a bad addiction? Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's fascinating. That's fascinating. And I, I want to go back, if you're okay with this, to something you talked about sure. with said love. And I'm looking at the time, and I know I don't have you much longer. So I, I, I want to ask. You can have what time you, you like, but also we have to uh, we have to mind the listener. Yeah. I gave my daughter two hand signals. This means uh, wrap it up soon, Dad. And this means wrap it up now. <laughs> okay, so I'll watch, I'll watch for your. Wait, you watch for my hand signals, not I'll watch for your hand signals. No, I'm teasing. No, that's right. No, no that's, <laughs> right. that's right. This is your show. This is your, this is your goat rodeo. How about if we come to a mutual conclusion? But I do want to ask you this first. Um, okay. Because the concept of love, gosh. Yes. I mean, that could be an entire part two for me. Right now, I am reading um, a book called Lacan on Love. And it talks about how Lacan said love. And 
I might butcher the quote. So if you right, know, if you know it better, please. I doubt it. I'm not a fan of Lacan, but go ahead. Okay. So he said, love is when you give something to someone that that you don't have and they don't want. Yeah, no. <laughs> okay, tell me about no. no. <laughs> I mean, he might be right, but I don't buy it. Um uh uh Love is doing dedicated work to maintain something that you depend upon. I, that's my, that's my definition. It's quite operationalized, meaning that it's an, actually an objective way of determining what love is. Remember, I think love is wonderful and love is downright evil. Hmm. I do not think that love is the answer. I think love is the question. So here's one way to come at that. Um, uh, I call it uh, hard left, hard right, hard center, hard choices. It's a sequence. Okay, so I go out in the world, I'm I'm a liberal leftist, and I say, love is the answer. And I get seriously burnt because I end up loving the wrong thing. Um, and so I decide that toughness is the answer. So that's hard right. I switch to hard right. Um, and from now on, I'm going to be tough and aggressive and assertive. And then I get burnt doing that because that actually doesn't work all the time either. So I say, well, well tough love is the answer. That's hard center. Like there's a perfect notch in the middle. And then, this is back to the question of flow and constraint, what you're going to tolerate, what you're not, it's very much a yin-yang thing. What you realize is that tough love is the question. Where to be tough, where to be loving um, is the lifelong question, is hard choices. So hard left, hard right, hard center, hard choices. Mm -hmm. I'm at the hard choices point. I'm not interested in, when people say love, I don't swoon and try and tuck myself under it anymore. Uh, Loving Nazis is not a good thing. And that's love. I could say, well, that's not love. No, it's not love by your standards, maybe. But the question is, why isn't it love? Um, people say, well, love is connection. No, it's not. Uh, it, 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 I had a conversation at a, at a block party with a neighbor who kept on saying love is connection while he was guarding his daughter to prevent her from connecting with the car that was driving by in the street. Mm-hmm. And I was able to point out, no, you're trying to pick the right connections, not the wrong connections. Um, So I am over that attempt to figure out how to position myself under love so I'm a loving person. And here's another interesting thing about love. Love is always relative. Any preference is relative. The more you prefer something, the less you prefer its opposites. So if you love equality, you hate inequality. Yeah. And you that you shouldn't mince words about this. It's really important that we get better at admitting that we impose constraints on some things and we allow flows on other things. And we're trying, we are all trying, if we if we stop filling our minds with this kind of virtue signaling, we're all trying, trying to figure out where to do this, where to do this, what to give of ourselves and what not to give of ourselves. Lacan stuff tends to be too esoteric and um, almost full of itself uh, for its uh, for its outrage. It's a little cliche guevara to me. And also, I would say that the entire postmodern movement is not paying attention to the fact that we have to get a- along with reality too. It's not it's not we're not just getting along with ourselves and getting along with other people. Gravity matters. Um, there are things that we have to watch out for. Climate change is real. So yeah. the idea that it's just the it's just arbitrary power struggles or something like that, which is a kind of a postmodern hard thing, 
I think a lot of it is power struggles. I study them a lot, but we're doing this in the backdrop of reality and reality prevails no matter what. In the long run, reality prevails. So one last thing about the religious thing. I love the idea of the container. I got a container like that. It didn't particularly work with me, the Jewish seven years of yeshiva, orthodox school I had. If anything, it made me uh, skeptical of all containers. Um, but um, society is intermediating between reality and affirmation, self-affirmation. So you could end up in a religion that is basically a power move that is containing you within its own egomania and inviting you to humble yourself before an imaginary name-droppable friend so that you can lord it over your fellow humans. So there's that version of religion too. Once again, I got to figure out where to, if you want a religious life, you, you want a good one, not one that dupes you. So these are the interesting challenges we deal with. Yeah. All life long, trying to figure it out. Yeah. And, and this might be a mis, um, a misinterpretation of what you've said, but I, I hope that I'm giving it some, that's fine. Yeah. I, I hope I'm interpreting it properly because I'm, I'm always fascinated and have sort of dedicated myself to hopefully being a lifelong learner. So I'm hoping that I'm learning. I'm hoping that I'm, what are the, what are the young kids? I hope I'm picking up what you're throwing down here. Like just, just to understand. Just to understand, not, you don't have to agree with anything. I said, Lord knows. Because I do disagree with you on Lacan. I love the idea of loving, of love being, the receiving of something I don't want. So we could, we could, pr- once I'm done the book, I'll invite you back for a part two. And we no, that's fine. And, 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 and I should point out that I'm talking out my hat about Lacan. And I would say this about, remember, I have a site called Ambigamy, Insights for the Deeply Romantic and Deeply Skeptical. And um, I pay a lot of attention to the ambivalence we have about partnership. Um, uh, uh, and in part because I had I had a long, interesting run. I'm retired from all that. I I I only have friends without benefits at this point. Benefits tend to confuse the friendships. I love friendship. I'm excited. Uh, I, I I'm glad that my lack of appetite finally caught up with my lack of aptitude. I'm a little too mouthy for partnership. Um, uh, but uh, but I but I have yeah. So I, I'm very happily married to solitude. But. I noticed the ambivalence in all of us. I even got a limerick about it. Here's my limerick about it. In this pairing, I'm. Let's uh, see. And in, in in this pairing, I'm. Be, I, I start to feel. Uh, I, I find in this pairing, I find that I'm fearing about when we'll start breaking and tearing. Oh, don't you dear leave me too soon? It would grieve me, or too late if you start to get wearing. <laughs> that's quite cute <laughs> that's quite quite cute i i i appreciate that um it's a there's a poem there's a line in a poem he married her to, i'll say it in the, the other gender she married him to keep him from getting away now he's there all day <laughs> you know i mean and we could, again this could be a whole nother podcast but I, I know my husband and i have often said um what I loved about him and adored about him in the first two years of our marriage 
wanted made me want to smother him for the last 22 (laughs) do you know what I mean and he says very similar to me he's like because my husband was a feminist before I was a feminist he was always I was he was like oh my gosh you're so this you're so that and then after two years he was like oh my god could you please (laughs) you know and then he would encourage me so it's quite funny um it's quite funny that that balance or that day yeah, and that was and that that was actually also the pattern in my relationship that is women would fall in love with me because I could name more than two emotions yeah um that is I was uh, I was a very sensitive guy it was it was it was overwhelmingly oppressive to be around me that much yeah. Um, I mean, so exactly what charmed them about me and made them sure that they would want to be with me. No, in it's, the it's long run. Funny. No. I think that I think if if my husband were to confess his heart, I wonder if he wouldn't say the same. I am a very steady person. It takes yeah. a lot to get me emotional. I'm I'm not emotional. I tend to be steady as she goes. Like I like to have fun, etc. But not a lot makes me mad. Not a lot gets me upset. Um, you know, whatever. I kind of go by two or three emotions that I love and then the rest, you know, whatever. And I think in the beginning he went, oh my word, you're so steady. You're so calm. You're, this is amazing. And then after a while, he's like, you don't feel (laughs) like, do you have a heart? (laughs) So it it can be kind of a little bit the opposite. Um, But what I, what I love um, about everything that you've said today. And again, hopefully this is the, the encompassing. Except my critique of Lacan. Now, let's, yeah, I'm not taking that. That's, no, no, good. Right. There you go. That's right. Right. <laughs> Bye, Mike. Yeah, I'm talking out my head. Garbage. Forget that noise. Hear <laughs> me, you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> what I think I'm picking up is the fact that um, more so, and this this would be, for myself in particular, more so than trying to find what's right, finding what's right right now, and then also enjoying the process if you're wrong. And what that, to me, what you've been talking about, and again, correct me where I've misinterpreted, is it, it to me, it reminds me of, of opening a pop bottle and letting the, the, the fizz out of like, huh. Okay, so then I don't have to hold everything in such a hard grasp, because if I get it right, awesome. And if I get it wrong, awesome. It's the it's all part of the life experience. I I would rearrange that furniture just a little bit. First of all, we're guessing life has always been iffy guesswork. The idea that it could not be that we could find the right formula originates with language and the human capacity to imagine ideals. Um, language is a, in some ways makes us more precise, more visionary, more accurate, in other ways makes us way sloppier than other critters. We can we can put together, we can imagine anything um, uh, and be really sloppy about it, uh, given language. So it's about life has always been iffy guesswork. Um, it's dire. It really matters that we get it right. No wonder we would want to find the best solution for right now. But that's not actually available to us. We can only make our best bets about what should happen. And we live in a situation where there are, are, we live in a world where ironic situations are inescapable. What do I mean by an ironic situation? What do we mean by it? You can make the best possible bet and ironically it turns out worse. You can make the worst possible bet and ironically, it turns out good. 
So this is, I'm talking about a dance that runs right down the middle of two possibilities. One is that you'll find the right formula even for right now. And the other is that there's no formulas. It's all a crapshoot. Hmm. I'm saying life is dire and it's also slapstick. When you think about an ironic situation, it is both. Ironically, um, these people who say they want to make America great could end up ruining the country forever. Ironically, um, uh, uh, when someone made a mistake in the lab, they discovered this incredible uh, solution that has solved all sorts of problems ever since. Um, it's it's dire, it's slapstick, it's tragic comic, it's real, and yet. So I don't get to, I don't get to say. I don't get to say, well, it's enjoy the ride, and if it turns out terrible, it's just as good as if it turns out good. No, I can't think, I can't convince myself of that. What I can say is, I stand corrected. I'll adjust. The metaphor I've come through out of the scientific research that actually captures the research pretty well is that you're driving, you're trying to control yourself while you're driving a winding road in the fog that hasn't been built all the way yet. There's no GPS for it. You're trying to avoid errors on opposite sides of the road. So my sense of equanimity is, as a driver, being equally conscious, a little anxious about being too assertive or not assertive enough for the situation, being too constraining, too freeing for the situation at hand. That serenity prayer kind of it's the the prayer itself is the wisdom. It's the wanting to get it right for the situation. And for that, you have to stop distracting yourself with these positive and negative connotations. Hmm. And just think about them as moves that 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 apply in some situations and not in others. Yeah. And, and if you don't if if you're still stuck on the connotations, it stunts your growth because you're so busy trying to avoid what everybody in the local culture says is bad or good. Trying, trying to avoid what's bad, trying to duck into what's good, that you can't actually mind the road. The road is winding. Yeah. I so, think it's very yeah, difficult for the dualistic mind to hold those two concepts at one time. Yeah. And so it's a, it's an interesting kind of dualism, um, which is I'm saying you have to be paying attention to opposite risks in any situation. That's the hard choices at the end of hard left, hard right, hard center, hard choices. Tough love was just an example of it, but think about it. Tough love, what are the Jews going to say? to The Jews can't go to Hitler and say, uh, look, uh, you want to kill six million of us. We want you to kill zero. So let's settle on three million because that's <laughs> tough love. That's right in the middle. No. Yeah. So, so we're trying to figure out where to be on the road in a situation, when to be really aggressive, when to be really uh, accepting, all of that kind of stuff. It is hard for us. It's more work. What it means is owning the human condition. You are a human. You're trying to guess what's the best thing to do in an uncertain, on a foggy, windy road. Uh, some of it's better marked than it used to be. Societies, it, you know, we've evolved all sorts of great tools. Um, but it, it, the doubt is irreducible unless you want to go all the way out to delusion where you become a figment, you know, a legend in your own mind. And you're basically playing God as if you've got the solution. You don't have the solution. No one can have the solution. Yeah. Yeah. That's okay. So maybe this is a, maybe this is not in the same arena, but I'm going to throw it in. Is it, is that is what you're talking about in any way, shape, or form 
similar to a life death life cycle or a construct deconstruct reconstruct cycle where construct is sort of the hard right deconstruct is sort of the hard left and then reconstruct is sort of in the middle because what i have found if if you believe in the life death life cycle you can say the same thing in the second life cycle as you can in the first but it means something completely different yeah i think i think there's a lot to it what what the problem with these kinds of models what what i would pay attention to i don't know the life death cycle is that if it's pointing Hegel was the founder of this kind of approach where there's a there's a thesis and then there's an antithesis and there's a kind of a dissociation you're dealing with an antimony which is a uh both things can't be true and then you find a synthesis so thesis antithesis synthesis the problem with Hegel he's right about it to some extent I would I mean how you work that out biologically is interesting um but he tended to suggest that it's uh, there's a path spiral dynamics would be an example of this that there's a there's a that i can not only will i tell you the process but i can tell you where the process is going and i don't i don't buy those versions of but what you're talking about um is kind of central to our current work um uh how we end up with degeneration that creates new regeneration and this is the, the we're working it out from the biology all the way up to the psychology. It's a it's a longer conversation, but it does relate to this. Um, you you discover that what you did was not working, and you go back and you try something, and you reevaluate, and then you come back perhaps with the same thing, which is what you're suggesting, or perhaps with something different. Yeah, a, you're you're killing me here a little bit because um, I would love to talk about spiral dynamics with you because I find that interesting, but I will ask you this question because I know we don't have time for spiral dynamics, but I will ask you this question. I know that Hegel at some point in time got split into two, right? People who took his religious beliefs out of it and people who kept his religious beliefs in, in it. When you talk about, uh, I forget how you said it, but point, point, and then meeting in the middle kind of is what you were saying. And I realize that's total. No, 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 I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm saying it's not that. They're not that. Right. Yeah. Right. So are you, are you falling on the side where they took his religion out or are you falling on the side where they kept his religion in? Or do you think? You know, it's- he, he, so I'm talking about something more fundamental than this. Imagine this. No, that's not just religion. It's, it's, it's about, he, he had a sense of where the process of synthesis would lead ultimately here. Try this one out for just a very standard example. Imagine that you're going on some dates with someone and uh, they seem a little eager to partner up and you're not sure whether you're going to partner up with this person or not. And you say, I want to go slow. Okay. What does going slow mean? It means I want to go slow on deciding whether I want to partner or I want to go slow into partnership with you. Mm. So there's a difference between admitting that there's a process and hinting that the process moves hierarchically towards some perspective that you think we will land at. Um, So whether Hegel was religious or not, in general, he and his student, Marx, had a sense that it was all destined to inevitably play towards some ultimate goal. This is like purgatory. This is like strive for the inevitable, which is an interesting, ironic statement wait a second if it's inevitable why are you striving for it 
Yeah. Um, I don't believe it works like that. I believe we build the road as we travel it. That's what we're talking. That's what you and your 17 year old son are talking about. That is, that's a freedom. We don't know how this is going to end. And anybody who tells you the process and then tells you how it's going to end, where the process leads, I'll, I'm interested in the process. I could point at uh, Arthur Kessler is someone I really like on this question of, that you talk about as a life death cycle. But I don't buy the Kevin, uh, the Ken Wilber idea of the spiral that's heading somewhere because I don't buy any of those. I don't buy Marx's. I don't buy. I don't buy the libertarian version of it. Like these guys are telling us that it's all going to inevitably go to this one place. No, it's a little more uncertain than that. We're building the road as we travel it. Yeah, it it, it takes me into a little bit of there's. My son was telling me this the other day, but there's this fallacy of. Um, what is it called? Like a naturalistic fallacy where if yeah. it's in nature, then it is good. So it's an is ought. If it is, then it ought. And he was just going like, mom, do you know that, that technically that's BS? You know what I mean? Like if it's in nature, then therefore it must be good. So we must do it like nature does it or right. whatever. Right. And, the, and there's the opposite. There's the opposite one, which I, I coined a name for and then someone else beat me to publishing it. Um, <laughs> but the normalist fallacy would be what ought is. Hmm. But when you think about a fall from grace myth, uh, what we wish were true of us was true of us. Um, we can get back there. Or, um, I mean, you hear this in the very practical terms. If someone said to me, uh, if, 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 if I asked someone, are you racist? And they said, I hope not. They're actually answering a different question. Um, that's about what the oughts should be. So yeah. the whole relationship between is and ought um, is the work that I do out in the origins of life. So I have a book out with Columbia University Press on that origins of life work, and it ends by pointing out that what, what we want to do is explain the is of oughts. That is the first more the first good and bad arises with organisms trying to survive. Yeah. For which things are good or bad. So that's the origins of oughts. Yeah. Um, I I I I I find this so fascinating and and to me now I want to go into fatalism where like we think we're fated to something. Um Yeah, I I, I, I saw a co I saw a concert last night where they sang a song about the promised land. Promised by whom? <laughs> yeah. Or it's a little bit like human rights, right? Like this idea of, you know, right. you have this this right as a human being to have some sort of expectations or, yeah. and all this stuff. Um, so I feel like we could go on for this. Like, we could go on forever. Yeah, go um, on. yeah, the rights are rights are human aspirations. Yeah. There are no there are no nature given rights. That's one of the paradoxes on my mind is that 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 natural selection is not out to make us happy. But yeah. paradoxically, we ended up with language which makes us think that nature should be out to make us happy. Yeah, it's complicated. I love it. I love it. Okay. So All right. So we'll so have, we'll, we'll be back sometime if you like. It. We're gonna have a part two. I'm gonna finish the con, and then I'm gonna call you back, and I'm gonna be like, "Hey." And you, yeah, you straight you you straight me out on that. Part, okay? <laughs> then I'll know what I'm talking about. <laughs> no, then you will for sure, and I'll stand corrected. <laughs> Probably not. So oh, maybe. Here's the thing, Jeremy. If someone has been listening to this and gone, oh my gosh, he has books, he has a website, I would love to get in contact with him. I would love to dive deeper into his work. How can people connect with you? So um, uh, I had a, someone who was helping me with my promo work uh, yesterday said, you've got to mention your new book. Uh, I have this new book out on Amazon, What's Up With Assholes? 
uh, how to spot and stop them without becoming them, um, without becoming one. I encourage you to take a look at that. You can always find way too much of me simply by uh, Googling uh, Jeremy Sherman. Um, I have a Facebook page where I put out bumper sticker size essays, um, 10 a day. Um, uh, I have, uh, I have. if you look me up on Psychology Today, you'll find this week I'm hitting a thousand articles. I will have hit, written my thousandth article uh, for them. Uh, way too much of me. I have two YouTube video channels, one on the origins of life work, the other one on the psychoproctology work that is trying to get a, a better understanding of what's going on with butthead behavior. Um, yeah, and then you can contact me at js at jeremysherman.com. Uh, but th yeah, there's just a lot of me out there. Fantastic. Some would say too much. <laughs> <laughs> just enough. Just enough. Just enough. Just enough. <laughs> just enough for this week. But next week, there's going to be more and it'll be just enough then. It'll be just enough. It's a moving target. <laughs> Thank you so much. Honestly, like, I have to say, I have so few answers, but I have so many questions and you were gracious enough to allow me to play in the questions. And I, I appreciate that so very, very much. So thank you so much for spending thanks for, time Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure to be with you. Awesome. Awesome. Right. Thank you listeners for spending time with us until next time. Take good care.